Mithras fried chicken, spit roasted suckling pig and lamb served with salsa menta, elder and lentil broth. Hazelnuts are available for snacking. Under no circumstances may beef be eaten at this festival. Welcome to Classics Confidential. In this episode, we're talking about Roman food. Food plays a very central role, obviously, in everybody's daily lives. Um, And people connect to food, they identify it with it in very specific ways. So it's very linked to who you are, where you've come from, who your family is. Uh, You try to express things through food. That's the voice of Dr. Zina Kamash. She's a lecturer in Roman art and archaeology at Royal Holloway University in the UK. And she's the perfect person to introduce us to Roman food since she spent several years exploring the relationships between food, memory and identity. In 2014, she organised a research project called Food for Thought, which included an exhibition at Carinium Museum in Gloucestershire. What we wanted to do in that exhibition uh, is look at everyday food, so not the things that normally get kind of pounced upon when people talk about food or the weird and exotic things like eating dormice and flamingo tongues and all the exciting things, uh, because those weren't everyday life. These were exotic things that maybe happened occasionally, and we wanted to try and get to what that everyday experience was. Uh, So we put together an exhibition that explored uh, the utensils that people use, the animal bone remains, so we tried to show how archaeologists reconstruct this picture of of diet. Uh, And then we thought about things like gender, uh, about moving around the empire, about how foods move and how that connects to people. Uh, And then one of the things that we asked visitors to do when they came to the exhibition was to share with us their food memories. And we got a really good response to that. And and people, some people just shared what food they like. There was a lot of I love pizza. Uh, There was a lot of we love a cheeky Nando's. Um, And there were some other ones around childhood memories lots of people connecting with their grandparents and what they remember eating with their grandparents uh, what they remember eating on holiday um, for some people it was very much uh, a sense of home someone remembering um, sitting by a fireside and eating a particular kind of Polish soup uh, that reminded them of feeling safe and comfortable when they were unwell at home so this food made them feel loved uh, so some really powerful lovely memories that came out from that these stories remind us of how central food is in our lives. It helps to define who we are and how we forge connections with the people around us. And it's always been like that. Now, as archaeologists, we can use food as a route into understanding the ancient world and the way that individuals and groups defined themselves and positioned themselves in relation to other groups of humans, animals and gods. That's what we'll be exploring in this programme. So grab a bag of snacking hazelnuts, sit back and enjoy this journey through some of the very latest research on Roman foods. Okay, hi, I'm Stephen Ellis. I'm at the University of Cincinnati in the Department of Classics. Stephen's an archaeologist who's been working in Pompeii, where food remains have been a vital tool for reconstructing all kinds of social relationships within the ancient city. Yeah, I'm definitely fascinated by food. I mean, it's who isn't uh, interested in food, and 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 so for 
that's one of the records that, that we can get up through the excavations of Pompeii, uh, which is really quite interesting for us because otherwise, without that data, we otherwise had, you know, we had the structural data, we had the walls, we had the floors, we had all the fills that went into building, making the spaces, but the actual use of the space is hard to get at. Um, and so food helps us there because we don't really have the floor deposits like, which is the mythology of Pompeii that you would have, that what you find tells you about the use of the space. That actually rarely happens because of the nature of construction over time and then the, then the last phase being wiped out by the earlier, the earlier excavations. But what we do get through that sequence are toilets, the cesspits, um, we have the drains uh, coming out, out of the kitchens and they retain all of those very local, hyper-localized um, uh, signs of activity. So for that, yeah, food has been really important for, for us. Stephen's team has been working in the Porta Stabia neighborhood. For those of you who are familiar with Pompeii, it's the zone down near the theatres. Why uh, we chose that neighbourhood was to get at an area that was devoid of sort of elite buildings. Elite buildings as identified through things like the Atrium House, um, as broad as uh, uh, a definition as that might be. So it was a chance to try to get at a, at a so-called sub-elite neighbourhood. Um, uh, but and that was sort of the original idea. What we found over time was that even though we'd found what was, to our minds, the kind of the poorest neighborhood, as it were, um, really when we looked into it and looked into the kitchens, looked into the drains, looked into the materials that spoke to the activities in those spaces, we found that the, the standard of living was higher than we had, we had, we might have otherwise suspected. Well, at least it was more, uh, at least it, was, it was richer. It was more complex than just a, a, a sub-elite neighborhood where people huddled around eating gruel and, and uh, you know, they're, living in, they're living in pretty finely decorated buildings. Smaller buildings and shops and, and, and little restaurants and things, but they're still um, presenting a, a sign of sort of urban life that is uh, higher than we normally appreciate. This is a really good example of how looking at the remains of food can challenge our assumptions about ancient lifestyle and how bioarchaeological traces can be used alongside other sorts of evidence to give us a fuller understanding of the past. Well, we got to this area which is again it's, it's without uh, elite atrium style houses it doesn't have mosaics it doesn't have nice wall paintings doesn't have that kind of record but the but the bioarchaeological record is much closer to that of an elite house. Um, in terms of the, the types of spices that they're eating, the types of foods that they're getting in, for, whether it's peppercorns from India um, or imported foods coming in from North Africa or Spain. They're, they're, there's, there's, a, there's a complexity there. Not all of them, um, which is interesting. I don't want to present it as the whole area being, being, um, being much fancier than it was, but what we get from looking at, we have about 20 different shop fronts, um, and what we get from looking at those is a... A, a texture between them, between neighbouring shops. So, rather than rather than just getting at, at the <clears throat> excuse me the, the foodstuffs for a, for a, a single elite house, we've been able to get at the foodstuffs, the menu or the diet uh, for neighbouring shops, neighbouring restaurants, and we've been able to see a, a kind of a distinction there between them. So, what was the typical diet of someone living in this area of Pompeii? I think the typical diet. I think I've I think I've a looser answer than a typical diet. It's because I'm not sure what the I'm not sure what is the typical diet yet. Uh, I don't think we really know what that is. But what I can say is that it it has a range, it has a richness and a complexity. We see a variety of cereals. We see a variety of the fruits and the vegetables. We're not just seeing singular types of things dominating the the food record. 
um, we're seeing spices coming in from all over the place, um, cumin and, and, and pepper, for example. Um, we're getting a range of meats uh, in some shops and not in others, that uh, younger cuts in some and, and older cuts in others, uh, and a variety of things like shellfish. And uh, some of the work that we've now that uh, our team has done is to recognise that even the shellfish, some of it's coming from one part of the Bay of Naples, uh, through, dry, through, through raking uh, of, of the beaches and, and other shellfish are coming through diving in another part of the Bay of Naples. So it just, it, I guess my answer is I haven't really been able to pin down uh, what is a typical diet other than to get my head around the sense that it, it must have been really rather varied and, and rich and, it, and, it, and I think it speaks to the world in which they're living in, in Pompeii. It's hardly surprising that the richness of Pompeian food has captured our modern imaginations. I'm not just talking about archaeologists here, but artists and other practitioners too, including those working with food. Now, if you went out of the Pompeii excavations and carried on down the Via Plinio into the modern town, you'd soon come to the Pasticceria Gabbiano, where you can find all kinds of sweet delicacies both traditional Neapolitan dolci, but also some unique creations inspired by ancient Pompeii. They're the work of prize-winning pastry chef Salvatore Gabbiano, who I spoke to earlier this year. I started by asking him whether he'd grown up in the area. Yes, I'm from Pompeii and my grandparents were too. All my family are. When I was little, I often went to the excavation because my father worked with mosaics there. Sometimes, when we were off school in the summer, he took us with him to work and the experience of visiting the ancient city, it really stayed with me. So I grew up and I got my job as pasticciere and in 1994 I opened my own business. Of course I made all the traditional dolci, all the things you'll find in the classical Napolitan pasticceria. But then I decided to also concentrate on the thing that uh, had been my passion when I was little. Those questions that I asked to myself when I was at the excavation. Here were the people, but what did they wear? What did they eat? So I started to make a study of what they ate and how they ate it. I studied the ancient painting and the ingredients that they were using. I made some of the new sweets that were inspired by the ancient one. The first one was called Dolce de Misteri, inspired by Villa of the Mysteries. And then, after that, I made Focaccia 79 AD. I got the idea from looking at the stone flower mills that we can still see in the ancient Pompeii today. The flower they used back then it wasn't like the one we have now. It was much less fine grain, it was more integral with the skin, the seeds. So I produced this focaccia that I called 79 AD. Inside there are dried figs, nuts, candy apples, honey, and there are spices like cinnamon and fennel seed. So it's very spicy, but it's also very delicate. Insomma, è molto speziata pure, però è molto delicata. Salvatore Gabbiano's delicious creations add another sensory dimension to our visions of the Pompeian past. We can taste, smell and touch the ingredients of the Roman kitchen and appreciate the way that they've been remixed for our 21st century palate. 
Other modern food practitioners have also looked to classical antiquity for inspiration. A few years ago, the British chef Heston Blumenthal reenacted a Roman feast where he served garum, a huge hog with edible intestines, and calf brain custards. Yummy! These culinary experiments have huge popular appeal, but they're also a really good tool for reflecting on history. Dr. Mike Beer is a Roman historian who's worked extensively on foods, and he argues that looking at modern spectacular feasts, like the ones staged by Heston Blumenthal, can challenge many of our assumptions about the role of banquets in the past. At the moment, I'm currently working on a contribution to an anthology on luxury in the senses. And what I'm looking at is um, theatricality and illusion in ancient banquets, specifically imperial banquets of the Roman period. I think what I'm trying to bring to it is a reinterpretation of the way that people have traditionally looked at these banquets. Generally speaking, the ancient texts seem to see um, these theatrical spectacles as ways of castigating um, the emperors for being particularly bad emperors. Um, and I'm trying to look at them in terms of performance art. Uh, I was attracted to it because of my interest in what we call modern cuisine, sort of the, what they call molecular gastronomy, though I don't think people like it being called that anymore. Um, and I started thinking about, well, we enjoy looking at pranks and sort of um, illusions with food and food that doesn't, isn't what it looks like and the manipulation of sound and smells. And then I thought, well, I've seen that before in texts and especially in the, the life of Elagabalus, for instance. And then I thought, I've also seen it before in futurism. If you look at futurists in the 30s, they are doing exactly the same thing. They bring out a, a futurist cookbook which has the same sorts of things. So I thought, well, if I can look at it in terms of art, then maybe we can start reinterpreting what these, what these texts are all about. Some of the ancient banquets that Mike is writing about are, well, let's say they're a little bit eccentric. I mean, one of the first ones I'm looking at is um, Domitian. The Emperor Domitian has a black banquet, which is a funereal-themed banquet in which um, the whole room is done out in black, um, everything is black food, um, people serve in shrouds, um, and the only conversational topic is about death and executions. Uh, and I thought this was unusual, because normally it's, um, it's all about Domitian's sadism. But actually, you will find later on in the 18th century that various gourmand societies start having funeral-themed meals. So I'm now thinking, actually, it's less about his sadism and more about some kind of theatrical spectacle or at the very least a sort of a power thing. But, um, yeah, the, the idea of themed banquets is very interesting where, where a certain type of food is used or a certain type of guest. You know, it has to be look the same or dress the same. I'd love to go to one of those parties. Are there any other good examples? Yes, um, the Emperor Elagabalus is um, a fascinating figure who's getting, uh, definitely getting reinterpreted now. Um, he likes to, um, he likes to have serve pictures of food or wooden food um, or food that has been manipulated in some way with very strange things done to it and, and exactly the same things the futurists do. They serve food that isn't food. So you'll be served a picture of a meal or um, you'll be served uh, a meal that is all blue or uh, the dinner guests will be 
all fat or all tall or all thin. It's absolutely fascinating and, and generally speaking these, um, these banquets are seen as being uh, an example of how depraved the emperor is. But nowadays we see that as being you know some kind of theatrical spectacle which you know people find endlessly amusing. These elaborate dinners are all described in Roman literary texts and we'll never know whether they actually happened in real life. But as Mike points out, this doesn't really matter. It's all about the text, it's all about the way that texts react to these things. So in a sense, it's not too important to me to know whether these meals actually existed. It's important to me to know that the author says something about it and he clearly thinks that there's an audience for this and that's what I'm interested in. So um, the documentary evidence isn't too important because I know that some of the texts I'm looking at, people will say, well, you know, that's, that's fictional. You know, the Historia Augusti, people say, that's just all made up. Well, it's quite possible, but there's clearly when you get a huge chapter in there on the food habits of Elagabalus, and it goes on and on, these, these sections, you think, well, the author's clearly interested in it, or his audience is. So that surely tells us something about the concerns of you know, the people of that period. We're going to move now from the banqueting hall to the sanctuary, and the rest of this episode will explore some of the overlaps between food and religion. I guess we project ourselves into food. Um, we represent ourselves and we also relate to the world through food. And religion is quite important because it influences much of our food choices. Patricia Rodriguez de Souza is a chef based in Brazil. She's doing a PhD on the role of food in Candomblé. Well, Candomblé is an African uh, Brazilian religion where food plays a very important role. Uh, first of all, food is a means of representation of, uh, of the deities, but also is a means of um, professing such religion. And the most interesting thing is that all the deities have their favorite foods, so you cannot just offer any food. You have to make their proper food in a proper way with the ingredients they like. They are as picky as we are. <laughs> Patricia's work on Candomblé has some fascinating implications for the study of any religion that has multiple deities. Listen to what she has to say about catering for the Orishas, the deities of Candomblé. Uh, one one uh, very popular Orisha, even to those that don't belong to Candomblé, is Yemanja. She's the sea goddess and she's also related to fertility and family care and one of her favorite foods is uh, fried fish so people would fry fish uh, display it on uh, a porcelain plate uh, along with uh, white corn cooked and shrimps and would take this to the sea uh, uh, her uh, main celebration day is February 2nd. Another very important and celebrated Orisha would be Obaluaye. He's the uh, healing um, deity of the Pantheon. And his food is curiously popcorn. And it's known as the flower of Obaluaye. Many of the healing rituals in Candomblé are done with popcorn. Uh, there is one very interesting called the uh, popcorn bath, where actually a person gets uh, uh, popcorned uh, through uh, uh, going over her body. 
So the popcorn would take away all the miasmas and bad energy and so on. You can probably see where I'm going with this. In the Roman Empire, which also had multiple deities, how was food used to shape divine identities and to create bonds between gods and their worshippers? Luckily for us, Zina Kamash has been exploring these very questions. I have written a chapter on taste and religion for forthcoming volume on religion and the senses. And my chapter looks um, at the interplay between food, feasting, sacrifice, um, taste and religion in the Roman period. Uh, I try to move away from looking at mainstream Roman religion to looking out towards um, either the provinces or different kinds of religion to try and understand some of the complexities of the relationship between food and gods uh, and how what gods eat might differ to what um, humans eat and what humans eat when they're with gods differs to what they eat when they're just with other humans. One of Zena's case studies was the mysterious Roman god Mithras. So with Mithras, uh, what I wanted to look at was if there was anything specific about how you ate when you were with Mithras that was different to how you ate when you were with other uh, more mainstream Roman gods. Um, what seems to happen in Mithraea consistently in Mithraea across the empire is that uh, you eat very specific things uh, and those things tend to be chicken uh, and pork uh, and that you don't eat uh, cattle, uh, so you don't eat beef. Uh, and that's quite interesting because the iconography associated with Mithras uh, is uh, very strongly connected to him slaying the bull. So there seems to be some form of taboo over eating beef that's related to his myth specifically. Zena's also been looking at the cult of Mercury. Uh, so Mercury, uh, if you look, for example, at a site called Yulee, which is in Gloucestershire in the UK, and this is a wonderful site, it's a very long-lived site uh, and uh, we know that Mercury is the god there because we have his cult statue and we see various um, figurines that are connected to him with his uh, animals which are a goat and a chicken um, and uh, there's also a phenomenally good uh, animal bone assemblage from the site uh, that's been very well studied uh, and in particular, what's really interesting uh, there is that there is a huge number of uh, animal bones that belong to either sheep or goat. Normally, archaeologically, it's very difficult to tell the difference between sheep and goats. Uh, so animal specialists get very excited when they can definitely say that they've got either a sheep or a goat. And that's the case at Yuli. Uh, and we can see that the god is eating slightly different things there to the worshippers. So the yeah. god is eating more goats than the worshippers who are eating sheep. So in the cults of Mithras and Mercury, we've got this invisible line being drawn between gods and worshippers because they eat different things. And rather like in Brazilian Kinzomblé, the individual deities also have preferences about their own menus. So Mercury likes goats in the same way that Yemen Jai likes fried fish. You can read more about Patricia and Zena's work in the book Sensual Religion that's going to be published by Equinox in 2018. It's the first in a whole book series on religion and the senses edited by Professor Graham Harvey from The Open University. 
But in the meantime, I'm going to bring this episode to a close by asking Zena if we can ever really hope to understand what happened at an ancient religious feast. Uh, you could probably get some way to doing that. So you could, for example, uh, in the Mithraea, you can look at the pottery assemblages. Uh, and in one Mithraeum in Tienen, in Belgium, uh, that it seems to be that every person who's worshipping has their own beaker, they have their own plate, the, the numbers seem to tally very nicely with the, the numbers of chickens, so you can start to see individual portions uh, and numbers of worshippers. Um, there are other bits of literary evidence um, that are slightly controversial, things uh, like Lucian on Dedea Syria, on the Syrian goddess, uh, where he gives us really vibrant descriptions of um, uh, actions around worship um, in a site called Hierapolis in, in Syria. Uh, and on that, in his description, uh, he says that when the worshippers arrive, it's not that clear that little bit whether they're arriving or on their way, but they make a sacrifice of a sheep uh, and then they have a very physical interaction with it. They eat parts of it, they kneel on the uh, fleece, uh, but then they wear the head parts over their own head. So it's not just taste, it's touch. It's a very embodied experience as a whole. Thank you very much to all the contributors to this programme on Raymond Food. We've heard from, in order of appearance, Zina Kamash, Stephen Ellis, Salvatore Gabbiano, Mike Beer and Patricia Rodriguez de Souza. This programme was recorded and produced by me, Jessica Hughes, and I'll be putting a reading list up on our website, classicsconfidential.co.uk. Thanks for listening. <laughs>